0: Keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 15, and let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we look at this text this morning, help each one of us in this room to have our hearts lit up with the joy of the gospel. May we believe it. May we And trust our entire life to the gospel. And may we not be ashamed, but may we proclaim the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year was 1920. A Chinese general got up to speak to a large gathering of Chinese officers and soldiers the Chinese general's name that got up to speak was General Feng. He was a war-hardened soldier, and most of those soldiers listening were as well. But on this day, General Feng had some good news. You see, he was standing on the stage with a missionary named Jonathan Goforth. And both General Fang and Jonathan Goforth were there to declare the gospel. And so so, uh, General Fang gave a testimony, gave his testimony of how God saved his soul. 20 years previous to that speaking engagement, in 1900, General Fang was a 19-year-old soldier in the Boxer Rebellion in China. If you're not familiar with the Boxer Rebellion, it was a rebellion by the Chinese nationalists. They rebelled against the many foreign nations who were in China. And many of these nations enriched themselves off of the resources of China while they peddled the drug opium. And that drug caused widespread addiction, poverty, and death. And so these soldiers and a group of A mob, really mobs, went out and they went from town to town and they began to rid themselves of these other nationals and one of the easiest targets were missionaries and Christians. According to the old Dominion University website, an article on the website, the boxers moved from town to town, destroyed churches, burned them, and killed over 230,000 Chinese Christians. They went around executing pastors, and they killed around 200 foreign missionaries. 20 years later, General Feng told about how he was leading one of these groups of rebellions, one of these groups of soldiers. The newspapers dubbed their soldiers the soldiers from hell, because they would go from town to town, and they would go into people's homes, and they took whatever they wanted. They had their way with whatever women that were there, And they would go in, kill Christians and missionaries, torture them, burn their homes down. In one Chinese village called Pao Ting Fu, his company and the mob of boxers, his company of soldiers and the mob of boxers surrounded the homes of the American board missionaries. And as the American board missionaries were in their homes, they were hiding in there, really. One missionary came out. Her name was Miss Morrell. And the mob of soldiers and the boxers were surrounding the homes. They had their weapons. They had their their torches ready to burn down the houses. Miss Morrell asked if she could die in the place of the missionaries and of the women and of the children that were there. They went ahead and killed her anyways. And they went and killed all the children, men, and women But General Feng testified before those men in 1920 that the image of that woman willing to give up her life for those people was seared in his mind. He asked the question, why would someone love like that? Where does that kind of love come from? At one instance, he went to the home and they surrounded the home of a missionary And there the the father was on the second story with his son in his arms, and they were burning the home down. And as the home was burning and the man was ready to die, he was at peace praying with his son. And he asked the question, where does a peace like that come from? And so nine years later, after the Boxer Rebellion in 1911, he went and listened to an evangelist named John R. Mott. And Evangelist Mott preached the gospel and as, as this General Fang listened to him, he thought General Mott somehow knew about the things he had done because he described sin and he felt the conviction of sin. But then he heard about Jesus and he, he found out the reason. He found out the reason for their peace and the love that they had and it came from the one who gave peace, the one who loved them so much that he gave up his life for them and at that moment in that meeting General Fang realized that he was a sinner and he needed Christ and he called upon Christ to save him and save him he did In 1920 when he got up in front of those hundreds and thousands of people he was able to declare the gospel 400 soldiers came 400 Chinese soldiers came forward received Christ were baptized in fact, one of his ministries was going around as a soldier for Christ, telling the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, one newspaper dubbed him and his soldiers, the soldiers from heaven. His life was changed. At first, the story of General Fang, it seems like bad news, right? You have death, destruction, political oppression, murder. But General Fang's testimony demonstrates that bad news can turn into good news, can be overcome by good news, and that is the good news of Jesus Christ. We scroll on the internet, we turn on the TV, we read newspapers, if you still get those, and we read about all the really bad things in this world. And it can be so overwhelming. You have the pain of cancer, the misery of disease, the tragedy of war, the sorrow of loss, the greed of political corruption. And the most feared trouble in this world for most people is the news of death. But friends, there is good news that triumphs over that bad news. And the good news is the gospel. The good news is that the pain of sin, the curse of sin, the power of sin, the sting of sin, which is death, has been overcome and defeated by the victor, and the victor is Jesus Christ. And he did that through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, recounts the gospel. And in the rest of the chapter, what you see is that he applies the gospel by teaching about the resurrection hope that we have, the hope that someday we will have new resurrected bodies because of the gospel. And look at verse 57, because he ends this chapter with praise, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven. but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 57 is like a geyser that shoots superheated water into the air. And throughout this chapter, Paul meditates and he ruminates on the deep, truths of the gospel. And then it's like he can't hold it back anymore. He just bursts forth praise to Christ for the gospel. It's like the song we just sang. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. And you just can't help on the chorus, but say, oh, praise the name of the Lord, our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. Even if you do it when you're not supposed to, right, Jorge? I think everyone jumped in a little you know, before they were supposed to do that. But it's because you just couldn't hold it back, right? It's like when you know the gospel and when you believe the gospel, you say praise God for the gospel. So notice in verses 1 through 11, Paul reminded the church of the gospel. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15:1 reads, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. In verse 2, remind is a present tense. So Paul is saying, I want to constantly, daily remind you, I want this to always be on your mind, and that is the gospel. And this means, church, the gospel is for those without Christ. It's the good news for those who need to be saved, but the gospel is the good news for, us, for those of us who are saved. The gospel is for the church. It's something we need to recall to our mind every day. And so he's saying, I'm going to bring to your mind, remember the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And that's really the title of my sermon this week, and it will be for next week as well. And here is the gospel. According to 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the good news that Jesus saves sinners through saving faith, based upon saving truth, and by saving grace. and Really, those, that sentence gives the three-part outline for my sermon and for this text of Scripture. You can notice in verses 1 through 2, the gospel is the good news that saves sinners through saving faith. So one part of the gospel is that we are saved through saving faith. And then verses 3 through 8, you can observe the gospel is the good news that saves sinners based upon saving truth. So it's the saving truth about Jesus Christ. And then verses 9 through 11, Paul reviewed his own testimony and said that we are saved by the grace of Christ. So you can see that it were, you have the saving faith in Christ, the saving truth about Christ, and the saving grace of Christ. So the gospel is the good news that Christ saves sinners through faith based upon saving truth and by saving grace. And notice in verse one, he says the gospel, the gospel is the Greek word. The Greek word behind that is euangelion. It's used 76 times in the new Testament. It means good tidings. It means a message of great joy. And so Paul said here that he preached the gospel. The word preached is the verb form of gospel. It's euangelizo. So you could literally say Paul gospeled the gospel. He gladly proclaimed the glad tidings. Notice here that the gospel is the gospel. Paul wrote the definite article, the gospel. It's not A gospel. It's not one of many gospels. This is the only good news that can save sinners. No religion has another gospel. There will never be a better gospel or another gospel. Christ has given us the gospel. It's our only hope in this life. It's the only hope for the life to come. Corinth was in the heart of ancient Greece. In ancient Greece, if the Greeks wanted to know news about what was going on, they didn't have you know, social media back then. So they had someone who would come to the center of town and that person would proclaim the news. So imagine a runner running through town and he's yelling out, I have euangelion, I have good news. And everyone would flock to hear that person and what they wanted to hear was, the war is won, we are the victors. The most famous example of this was after the Battle of Marathon, when the Greeks defeated the Persians, you had a messenger who ran to Athens, the messenger ran a distance of 26 miles, he said his good news, and that is Greece, the the Greeks, we have won the war, we have defeated the Persians, and then he fell down dead. So to remember that, we have things called marathons. Paul wrote that we have news that is far better than winning any war. We have news about the greatest war that had ever been won. And that is the war when Jesus defeated sin and death and hell. So what is the good news all about? Well, actually, the good news is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. In fact, notice that in verses 3 and 4 and 5 notice the verbs that describe what Christ did for us verse 3 for i delivered to you as of first importance this is the most important what i also received that christ died for our sins notice in verse 4 he was buried and he was raised and then verse 5 he appeared and it goes on and talks about how he appeared to many individuals. The gospel is found in what Jesus Christ did for us. Notice the heart of the gospel in verse 3. Christ died for our sins. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves sinners. He died for our sins. The reason why Christ came and was born, the reason why he lived, the reason why he died was for our sins. God told Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, that the reason that Jesus will be born is that he will save his people from their sins. Not from the oppression of the government, not from depression, but from a problem that each person had themselves. It was their own sin. John the Baptist saw Jesus. He pointed to Jesus and he said, right there, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he came. Jesus came to rescue you from sin. The whole point of his coming was about defeating sin and sin's consequences. Sin is humanity's public enemy number one. That's contrary, that's mocked by our culture today. Educators, the news media, politicians, would have you believe that the greatest enemy in humanity or for humanity poverty, maybe it's educational ignorance, maybe it's environmental catastrophe or global warming or war or maybe oppression. And yes, those are all really bad things. Those are terrible things, but actually each one of those calamities are results and effect of the greatest problem, and that's the problem of sin. You see, sin is the root. Sin is the source. Sin is the cause of all the evil that is in this world. And what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is independence from God. Sin is desiring and choosing to live for me instead of living for God. It's choosing to please me instead of choosing to love God with all my heart and love my neighbor as myself. It's it's choosing to be ruled by my will instead of the will of the Father. In Genesis chapter 3, you see that humanity rejected God. And the consequence of that was God cursed the earth. God cursed the human race with pain and with difficulty and with death. And really what God did was God gave mankind what they asked for. Mankind wanted to be independent of God. Man wants to say, God, get out of my life. And so what God's judgment is for us is God says, okay, I'll turn you over to yourself. That's Romans chapter one. He turns you over to your own lust, to your own desires. And friends, can I tell you, that's a path of destruction because it's a path of sin. In Genesis chapter four, we see the effects of that sin when Cain lives for his own desires and he's angry his heart is filled with anger because his brother has something he wants that he wanted for himself self and so in anger he takes a rock and he kills his brother it's senseless it's terrible why does he do something like that and it's because of sin that's what god said genesis 4 6 God said directly to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, and sin's desire is to have you. It's to control you. It's to overcome you. So God pictures sin like a predator waiting to pounce, to destroy, and ultimately to kill you. In a book called Death in the Long Grass, there's a story of these lions, a group of lions in Africa who got a taste for human flesh. And so they would go into villages, into camps, and they would stalk humans. They would sneak into the camp. They were very stealthy. They wouldn't make a sound. They would grab their prey and drag it back into the bush. Sometimes they would wait and hide in the bush and they could run a hundred yards in only a few seconds and snatch away a human. They were Feared, they were feared, and rightfully so, because those lions could destroy and kill them. And friends, sin is like an uncaged lion, it wants to dominate you, to destroy you, and ultimately to kill you. And sin's power, sin's power is cruel domination. Sin's presence weighs your conscience down with guilt and shame. Sin's penalty ultimately is death. And what Satan does is he wields the weapon of sin in such a way that destroys your life. It destroys and hurts the lives of those people around you. But ultimately, sin drags you to hell. Sin's power is to control and dominate you And that's why you get angry and you yell and you feel bad about it, but you keep doing it. You have that bitter spirit within you and it's like you just can't be rid of that spirit. That malice, it stays with you. Why can't it leave me? You drink and you promise I'm not going to drink again. You tell yourself that, you tell that to your family, but then you keep drinking. You want to stop, but you can't stop. You spend, you search, you spend some more, and you hope it's going to fulfill you, but it doesn't. So you spend some more, and you spend some more, and it's like a cycle that you just can't stop. You complain, and you gossip, and you hurt others, and you know it's painful, you wish you wouldn't do it, but you keep doing it. You want to stop looking, you promise yourself you won't look anymore. You tell someone else, I promise that will be the last time, but then you, then you go back and look again. And you're like a dog that returns to its vomit. Sin's power dominates you. Sin's presence overwhelms and weighs in your conscience. I mean, you lay there in your bed at night and you think about the sin of your past and it just weighs on you like a thousand pounds. And sin's penalty is death. In fact, look down in verse 56. Verse 56 of First Corinthians 15. The sting of death... Is sin. Because sin has stung you, the result is death. In the news yesterday, I read of a girl named Asha from India. And Asha was bitten by a venomous snake. She was immediately taken to the hospital and put in a room, and the doctors were notified. But her family didn't let the doctors come inside the room. They invited an exorcist, really a witch doctor, to come in and to try to rid the evil spirits of that room and of this girl. The family wanted to try that first before they had the doctors come in. And right next to the room next to them, the doctors were there with a life-saving remedy of the anti-venom. And sadly, she died. The sting of that snake resulted in her death, but yet there was one who could save her. And friend, every person in this world, every person has been stung, has been spiritually stung by sin. You are a sinner by nature. You're a sinner By choice. And the result of that sin is that God judges you with the penalty of death. Death ultimately is separation. Physically, your soul someday will be separated from your body spiritually, you're alienated from the life of God. You're alienated from a relationship with God. Your soul is unable to please God. Your soul is unable to have a relationship with God. You, you can't enjoy the love and the goodness of God because you have a soul that's spiritually dead. And ultimately, there will be a day when your body dies and your soul will be sent to hell. I was talking to someone about this yesterday. Soul is not sin. Or I should say hell is not the absence of God. So you're not separated from the absence of God, but, but hell is actually God's eternal wrath upon you for sin. Yes, God is in hell, but his disposition to you in hell is eternal punishment. It's just it's right it's what every one of us and this world deserves and the difference between heaven and hell is in heaven god's goodness flourishes his love is present because his love is filled with worship because heaven is filled with worship heaven is filled with submission to god hell is god's place of eternal judgment for sinners who followed their own self. And in the end, like I said earlier, God ends up giving you what you earned your whole life and what you deserve. You, you earned sin. You you The wages of sin is death. You've earned your sin. You've, you've worked your whole life with sin and God gives you what you've earned. And ultimately he gives you over to yourself, which is a very serious and sad and sobering thing. Because hell isn't something that's just a curse word people use. Hell isn't just a word that people joke around about that don't know the Lord. Hell is a very real place. And so ultimately death is eternal spiritual separation in a place called hell. And oh, how fearful that should be if you are in here and you don't know hundred percent certain that Christ is your savior. And you're with, if you're without Jesus Christ in here, can I tell you that you're like that Indian girl, you've been stung by the spiritual bite of sin. You are spiritually dead in your soul. And someday you'll be spiritually separated from God, but here's the good news. You're in God's hospital, Right, And Christ stands at the door. He's the great physician, and he can apply the work that can forgive your sins. And it's his work on the cross. And one of the, It's sad to hear a story of a girl like that where just right next door there was there were doctors who could save her life. But that is sad. But what's even sadder is that people hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and they don't look to the good physician, to Jesus Christ, to save them. So the greatest enemy is sin, and the greatest need is to be saved. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Look at verse 2. Notice the word saved. And by which by which you are being saved. To be saved is to be rescued, to be delivered. This word save is used in Matthew chapter 8 when the disciples are miles out to sea. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and it's the middle of the night, it's dark, the wind is roaring, the wind is picking up the waves and crashing them into the boat, over the boat. The boat feels like it's going to sink, the disciples think that they're going to die, and so they cry out to the Lord, save us Lord, we are perishing, rescue us, we are going to die. And sure enough, Jesus stood up, he calmed the sea, and he saved them. They believed in Jesus, and he saved them physically from that imminent death. And so notice verse number two, he says, you are being saved. Like those disciples on that stormy sea, you need to cry out to the Lord, Lord Jesus, save me, I'm perishing. The winds of sin have overcome me, the lake of fire is beneath me, I'm doomed and lush." You forgive me. So we need to be saved. But notice in verse 2 he says, you are being saved. It's something that's happening to you. This is a passive verb. This is something God does for you. You can't save yourself. God is the only one who can save you through Christ Jesus. Or heard a pastor describe salvation, the gift of salvation, as taking place in three time zones. Past present and future. So when you think about salvation, he was saying, think about salvation in the past. That is that God has saved you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there was a point in time when you called upon the name of the Lord and he saved you, he rescued you. He saved you from the penalty of sin. And so therefore you are no longer under condemnation. You are forgiven. You are a child of God. So you have the Philippian prison guard who is a vile man. And Paul, the apostle says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the Philippian guard does that. He is saved. So salvation, you can think about it. Salvation is past tense. If you're a believer, you are saved at some point. It's present tense. And I think that's what you see here in this verse. You are being saved. It's present tense. means Christ will never give up on you. Christ continues to be your savior. Christ is the one who gives us eternal life. The Bible says in John eleven twenty eight, 28, you will never perish. He promises, Jesus promises, you will never perish. No one will snatch you out of my hand. So you're safe with Christ. You're safe with Christ. I think this also speaks of the fact that he is daily saving us from the power of sin. So he has saved us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin. And then actually chapter 15 is about future salvation as well. Because future salvation talks about the time when he'll give us a new resurrected body. And we are saved forever from the presence of sin. Salvation for the believer is a glorious and wonderful blessing that we should meditate on every day. And if you don't know the Lord, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. In in Hebrews chapter three, it says the Holy Spirit says it's today. And if you don't know the Lord, you need to have your Zacchaeus moment. What's your Zacchaeus moment? Zacchaeus was a sinful man. He stole from people and he realized that Christ came into his house and preached the gospel And he believed in Jesus. He confessed his sin. He believed in Christ. And Jesus said this to him, this day salvation has come to your house. Do you realize, friend, that this day salvation can come to your heart? And it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what is saving faith? Because the gospel is the good news that Christ saves sinners through saving faith. And Notice verse number 11 the conclusion of this paragraph here. The response to the preaching of the gospel is faith. It's belief, whether then it is, it was I or they speaking of Paul, the apostle or other apostles. So we preach and that's the gospel. And so you believed. So the response to the good news is faith and it's saving faith really in contrast to Vain faith or a faith that is empty. Notice that in verse number two. At the very end of verse two, some people believe in vain. So there are these two types of believers, or I should say, two types of people who profess to believe in Christ. There are two types of people who profess to believe in Christ. There's one type of person who professes Christ. But their faith is empty, it's vain, it's worthless. Maybe they, maybe they profess Christ because it's the thing to do. They grew up in a Christian home and everyone else is professing Christ, so maybe I should do the same thing. Or maybe they think, well, I'm going to profess Christ through a prayer, and maybe if I pray a really good prayer, maybe God will like me more. Maybe they profess Christ thinking that God is impressed with their amazing religious work, so they think, well, I profess Christ, I believe in Christ, and I also believe I'm a pretty good person. But that faith is empty. It's worthless. Ultimately, it's a faith in self. It's a selfish faith. It's faith dependent on me and not on Christ. It's like that girl in India and her parents had faith in the wrong person. That faith ended up costing their daughter her life. So what is saving faith? Well, it's faith in Jesus Christ. And notice he describes, look at verse 1. Notice he describes saving faith, and he does so with a few words. He says, the gospel I preach to you. And notice he says, which you received, so you received the gospel, in which you stand, so you stand in the gospel. Verse 2, if you hold fast to the word, to the gospel I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So saving faith is first that you receive the gospel. The word receive is past tense. So again, this points to a point in time when you turn from faith in something else or faith in yourself and you turn to faith in Jesus Christ. This means then that there's no such thing as, when did you become a Christian? Well, I grew up as a Christian. No, there must be a time when you received Christ. And it might be when you were a child, but there's no such thing as a person always being a Christian. You must receive Christ. This word receive means to welcome, to make it your own. This word is used of Joseph taking Mary as his wife in Matthew 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 20. Matthew 1, 20, the scripture says that he received, he was to receive Mary as his wife. When a husband and wife marry, you Leave that single life. You, you leave dependence on your parents, and you unite as one with that person. You receive that person into your life. So no longer, when I got married, no longer could I go out and just buy whatever I want to. And when I do try to do that, I get in trouble, and rightfully so, right? I can't just go buy a car or whatever I want. Why? Because my relationship has changed. I'm married I'm with this person. I've received her unto myself. And so we are receiving Christ. We're receiving him as our Lord, as our Savior. No longer do we rule our life. No longer are we trusting ourselves. We're trusting in him. He's our Lord. We're trusting that he saves. Your life changes when you receive Christ. When you receive Christ, you're turning from a life of indulgence, a life of lust, a life of sinful pleasure to a life of faith and joy in a life of pursuing Christ. You turn from independence from Christ to dependence upon Christ. You turn from trusting completely in yourself to trusting completely in the Lord You live for him, you rely upon him, you live unto him. He is the only savior, it's exclusive. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. There's no other way. And so you receive him as your only Lord and savior. So to believe in Jesus means you receive the gospel, you receive Christ as your own. But also notice in verse number one, to believe means you also stand in the gospel. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. So you receive the gospel. It's past tense, point in time, when you believe, and then in which you stand. And the word stand there is a present tense. That is a past action that has continuing results. So the past action is when you receive Christ, and the effects are that you stand, that you are committed to Christ the rest of your life. To stand speaks of a moment that you plant your feet down on the work of Christ and you shall not be moved. To stand means that you are resolute in your faith. This is not a fly-by-night faith. This is not a, I'll try Jesus out for a month or a year and see how it goes. This is, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. To stand in the gospel means that when your family calls you a fanatic, or your friends say that you're holier than thou, and you are tempted to shrink back and to be ashamed of Christ, you are not ashamed. And with wisdom and with love, you are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to save you. And so with love and with wisdom, you share with them that you love the Lord. You share with them the gospel. To stand in the gospel means that when your coworkers Notice that you don't use the F word every other sentence or notice that you don't celebrate certain colors in a certain month of June or you don't take the Lord's name in vain that you with love and with wisdom declare that Jesus is your savior and he died for your sins and you could never hurt your savior by going against something that he died for. To stand in the gospel means that there's times you're going to get knocked down by temptation and by, by sin. And when you do fall, that you get up by grace and you stand, not on your own work, not on your own doing, but you stand back on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think to stand in the gospel means that you sing with this author, there is one gospel on which I stand for all eternity it's my story, my father's plan. The son has rescued me. Oh, what a gospel. Oh, what a peace. My highest joy and my deepest need now and forever. He is my light. What is the end of it? I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe. And to believe also means that you keep holding to the gospel your whole life. Look in verse number two. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. To hold fast, this is a present tense. So this means that faith in the gospel is your daily, moment-by-moment, habitual practice. To hold fast to the gospel means that the gospel, again, is not just for the lost. It's actually for believers. Every day we need to remind ourselves of the gospel and hold tight to the work of Jesus Christ. To hold fast means that each day you get up and the trials blow and temptation beats on you, but you get up and you recall to your mind the gospel. To hold on to the gospel, to hold fast, the gospel means that you remember that there are times when you're tempted. You're tempted to think that God maybe doesn't love you. Maybe you think you're all alone. You wonder, where are you, Lord? But you remember the gospel and that God proved that he loved you. And Jesus proved that he loved you when he hang on that cross. When Jesus was on that cross and he died for your sins, he died because he loved you. So that's a lie that he doesn't love you. It's actually the truth is Jesus through the gospel showed that he loved you. So to hold fast to the gospel, you recall that to your mind. To hold fast to the gospel means that when guilt weighs you down, you think, I can't be forgiven. God surely has given up on me. You look back to the cross and you remember his promise is if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's holding fast to the gospel. So saving faith is receiving Christ and his work alone. It's standing in his gospel with full conviction. It's holding on to the truth until the end. Notice saving faith is contrasted with this vain and worthless faith. Look at that in verse number two. The gospel I preach to you, verse number one, the gospel I preach to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you and notice this, unless unless you believed in vain. There are those who profess Christ but never possess Christ. That's what that's talking about. There are those who believe in vain. What does that mean? If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Let me read for you a commentary that I think helps with this. The MacArthur commentary says this, If does not imply that believers are in danger of losing their salvation, but it's a warning against non-saving faith. So a clear rendering would be, if you hold fast what I preach to you, unless your faith is worthless or unless you believed without effect. So a believer who continues to hold fast to Christ, and yes, there are times where you might Sin and you do will sin, and there are times where maybe you have doubts and you struggle with that, but you go back to the gospel, and those who continue to hold fast to Christ, those who endure to the end, those ones are the ones who have genuine saving faith. However, those who claim to have faith in Christ, but at some point they let go and they never hold back on to the gospel. Their faith is revealed, is proved to be empty, to be worthless, to be meaningless. And so Judas Iscariot, for two and a half years, he claimed to have faith in Christ. And all the disciples thought he had faith in Christ. I mean, everyone around him thought he had faith in Christ, except for Christ. Of course, he knew his heart. But when Judas had an opportunity to make some money off of Jesus, he could make a buck. He betrayed him. And his faith proved to be in vain. On the other hand, you had Peter who also claimed to have faith in Christ for his two and a half years. Jesus predicted that Satan was going to sift him like wheat. He was going to deny that he even knew Jesus. He would give in to peer pressure. He would run away from Jesus. But his faith was not in vain. He had saving faith. And how do we know that? Because Jesus said that he was going to come back. He was going to minister to his brother's. So Peter's faith proved to be saving faith because he continued to hold fast to the gospel. How sad is it that Judas was with the Savior, heard the gospel, even claimed to have faith, but he never received the gospel. He never stood in the gospel. He never held on to the gospel. And he is in hell Friends, that is the destination of those who believe in vain. And so here's the question. Is your faith genuine? Do you have saving faith? The gospel includes saving faith in Christ. And then next week we're going to see saving truth about Christ. We're going to go into a time of communion. And so let me read this passage of scripture and remind us of the saving truth about Jesus Christ, about what he did for us. Look at verse number three, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. And here is the content of the gospel that Christ died for our sin. He died in our place as our substitute in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is based upon truth, historical fact, theological fact. He died, he was buried, and he rose again, and he appeared. Yeah. Right? His death paid for our sin in full. In his resurrection and his appearance, We're like the receipts that said, see, it's proof. It's done. And we can look to Christ who stands in heaven and he has a resurrected body and we can believe, we trust that someday God will give us that same resurrected body. We trust that he has resurrected our soul. It's because Christ died. He was buried. He rose again. And the proof is that Christ is in heaven. And so salvation was earned and purchased by Christ. So here's the question. Do you believe that? Have you received it? Are you standing in that? Are you holding fast to it as your only hope in this life and the next? Let's pray.